Welcome to Business Conversations with your host, business strategist, Clive Ennevar. Clive is joined by expert guests as they talk business behind the scenes to give you the tools and insights to support your growth, security, and serenity as you strive for your success. Welcome to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Ennevar. I am Clive Ennevar, business strategist, and we're having a conversation with Tim Baker, about utilising team diversity for high performance. Dr. Tim Baker is a thought leader, international consultant and successful author. Tim was recently voted as one of the 50 most talented global training and development leaders, which is for professionals who are doing extraordinary work in the field of HRD. He is Managing Director of Winners at Work Proprietary Limited, which specialises in leadership development and performance management. Tim is the author of several books, including The Eight Values of Highly Productive Companies, Creating Wealth from a New Employment Relationship. Hello, Tim, and welcome. Hi, Clive. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you. If for nothing else, let's explore what's HRD. Human resource development. So it's pretty much about developing the people in the workplace, and ultimately it's about getting the best from the people that work with you. And ultimately, it's really about learning and development, but with an emphasis on people rather than anything else. And it's obviously big business in this day and age. Indeed. And I'm pleased to hear you talking about it's all about people. Seems that for a little while there in business, we seem to forget that people were involved, but you specifically focus on bringing people into the business. That's right. I mean, my latest book's called Bringing the Human Being Back to Work. And a point I'm making there is that the last hundred years, since the early part of the last century when we had sort of the Ford assembly line, people have been taking it back back seats. So we've had KPIs, we've been talking about systems and processes and procedures. I'm not suggesting they're not important. Obviously, they are. But the point is that all of those things have taken a precedent and people have been put in the background. So the irony of all this is that we're becoming less human in the workforce. And so what's happened is now we're worried about automation. We're worried about machines taking over. And the irony is that we've become more and more like machines, you know, leave your issues at home, toughen up, princess, all of these things that we hear about in the workplace. But ultimately... We've got to reinvent what human beings, what being human is. And so the people are the sole purpose of any business. And I think we keep forgetting that. So is it fair to make wild assumption there that because people were forgotten as being part of the business, that perhaps as people working in a business, we've forgotten to love the business? I think that's a fair assumption. I think we've forgotten exactly what the business is about. I mean, you take people out of any business and there is no business. And I think just treating people with dignity, and these are fundamental things, treating people with dignity, giving people opportunities to grow and develop. And I'm not talking about soppy sort of thing. I'm talking about just general dignity, about treating people correctly. I mean, it's amazing how many people, you know, you hear harassment and bullying behaviours and all sorts of very uh, destructive type behaviours in workplaces and you sort of think to yourself, well, that's not going to work, of course, and nor should it. And so, look, my whole business is evolving around this bringing the human being back to work. You know, it's an extremely extremely important topic. 
encourage them to turn up, encourage them to do a good job, and surprise, surprise, you might have a good business. Is that what this what comes out as? You've just nailed it. Absolutely. In fact, you know, in one simple sentence, you've explained it all. But, and, you know, some of your listeners are probably thinking, well, this is common sense, but it's not common practice. And nearly every one of your listeners would know of an example where they've been treated less than, with less dignity or whatever. Everyone knows. Well, they've observed it and they will continue to observe it. So it's not as if this behaviour is common practice. It's not. Yeah, too often we see on the news or read in a newspaper that this one or that one has been bullied. Do we have something of an idea, Tim, of where this might have come from, this bullying behaviour by people in positions of authority? Yes, I've got a view that leadership needs to change. I think a lot of people still work on the command and control paradigm. You know, do as I say and do it now. I think there's still a lot of managers out. They go, obviously, people go to a lot of leadership programs and so forth, but I think in some cases it goes in one ear and out the other, which is very unfortunate. So the whole idea is if I think I'm above the people that work for me because, you know, for whatever reason, then I'm probably not going to deal with them on a level playing field and so I'm going to exhibit this command and control. So when I get stressed, I'm probably going to sort of shout and scream and carry on and think perhaps I've got a licence to do that because I'm the manager or maybe I own the business or whatever. So I think that's where it all comes from. I think people have got to reinvent what leadership is all about. I mean, there's a lot of material out there around do it, but I think a few people are a bit slow to learn and that becomes problematic. And one of the things that I think I've found about leadership is that it doesn't start when you need something done. It actually starts a lot earlier. So perhaps we need to train people how to better hire. Absolutely. I think here's a good example of what I was talking about, the dehumanisation of the workforce. We ask people when they come in to an interview about all of the KPIs they've achieved and all of that. Look, all of that's important. Obviously, you want people who have got some sense of experience and technical and technical know-how. No question about that. But we don't talk about the other things, about how they might have dealt in a team environment, how they might have dealt with a situation that was very difficult, how they deal with conflict. And what happens, of course, is we give people a three-month probationary period and then we think to ourselves, well, if I knew what I knew now... I wouldn't have hired the person. I wouldn't have employed the person. So we get that sort of situation. So, yes, it does. It starts at that point and it continues from that stage onward. And do you think there are relatively simple things that people can do to make the right hire, that is to not discover after two months or three months or whatever it is that the hire was wrong, but to discover at the beginning that the hire was right? I think one of the ways of doing that is exactly what we're doing today is just to create an informal environment and allow the person to be themselves. Because let's face it, a typical interview arrangement is is an act, isn't it? I mean, you go in and you put your best foot forward and all the rest of it. You don't want to say things that are controversial and all the rest. So I think, look, it depends on the seniority of the position too. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're recruiting a manager then clearly the leverage that they're going to have is significant. So you want to spend a bit more time doing that properly. It's an extremely costly exercise to get it wrong, but it's a relatively simple exercise to get it right. So go out to a coffee shop and have a conversation and just talk about the person, talk about their background, talk about 
you know, their interests. It's almost as if you're sort of blindsiding the, the person being interviewed, but you're not really. You're just trying to find out who the person is and what makes them tick because otherwise it's just a performance in a room. And then, you know, it's a big judgment call to make just to, you know, 40 minutes to make a decision about somebody's worth for the business. Indeed. And as something of an impromptu indication of how this sort of thing works, we've already discovered that you actually know quite a bit about the sort of things you're talking about. And for the number of books you've written about it all, we'd hope that that was so. But where does Dr. Tim Baker hail from and what's his life like? Well, I was born and bred on the Gold Coast and that was, you know, a great time, really. I had a wonderful time at school, great memories. You can imagine, you know, you've got the surf not far away. Not that I was a mad keen surfer, but I enjoyed the beach, of course. You know, you can't avoid that living on the Gold Coast. Wonderful environment. And as I stayed there a period of time, got into teaching and my heart just really wasn't in the process of teaching in a classroom. I just, it was one of those funny experiences, Clive, where I was at school and Someone said, what are you going to do when you leave school? And I said, I don't know. A lot of people say that still. And they said, oh, well, you quite enjoy school, don't you? I mean, I was very good at sport. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And they said, why don't you become a school teacher? Ultimately, that was the decision. That was the basis upon which I got into teaching. Not a very good start. And I remember the first day at university, I looked around and I thought, I don't belong here. One of those funny experiences we all have. Look, I stuck it out for six or seven years and... The funny thing is, that's what I do now. You know, I work, do a lot of workshops, do a lot of coaching with people. So in a very interesting twist, it was a great experience because I learned about how people learn. I learned about how to structure programs and all the rest of it. So it's been invaluable, but being locked in a classroom just was not my cup of tea. And then I studied psychology, did a few other things, and ultimately ended up being a consultant, which I've been a consultant for 20 years thoroughly enjoyed and couldn't imagine doing anything else, to be honest. You actually moved a little further north. You're now putting up with the pressures of living in beautiful Bris Vegas. <laughs> yeah, but it was interesting because I started my consulting practice on the Gold Coast, but as you can probably imagine, all of my clients or most of them were in Brisbane, so every day I'd get onto that that highway and anyone that's travelled between the Gold Coast and Brisbane knows that's not a great experience. And so after a while, that wore a bit thin. I started taking the train up, but then, of course, I didn't have a car. So my wife and I and kids moved to Brisbane from there. We've settled here and, and love Brisbane. It's a great place. So a lot of my clients are still here, but they're also all over the world, but I just don't have to do that terrible commute. Yes, I remember what that was like. Spent a few years in Brisbane and occasionally going to the Gold Coast, and which very quickly became even more occasional. <laughs> <laughs> it's a character-building exercise, and it doesn't matter what time you leave. I, it was interesting. I went down to the coast the other day, and I, I think I left about 6 o'clock thinking how wonderful I missed all the traffic. Well, I, I pretty much did, but what I noticed on the way up to Brisbane is all the tradies and everybody else on the road. It was a credible traffic jam at 6 in the morning. I thought you can't win. But that's what I had to go through for a period of time, but, you know, character building, no doubt. <laughs> Indeed. And you mentioned a wife and kiddies. Uh, what do they do and how do you fill in spare time? If you've got kiddies of a certain age, you might be going to 
football matches and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. You might say, what's their time? But yeah, my wife, Carol, she's a school teacher. So <laughs> I actually met her through teaching, which is a, a wonderful thing. And uh, so it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> so she's still teaching. She's doing a bit of supply teaching, which means basically going in and teaching at different points. She's also a director in the business here. So she's very busy. We've got two girls, 13-year-old who is just out, well, she's in high school, second year, and that's Portia and Georgie who's in her third year of psychology at University of Queensland. So she's sort of taking after Dad, although I don't think I should, I don't think she'd probably appreciate me saying that. <laughs> but, yeah, so, so, look, family things, the normal things we do and, you know, go out to dinner and all the rest of it and I've got a birthday coming up and, Looking forward to going out with the family in the next hour or two, which will be wonderful. Oh, very good. And part of the reason that I wanted to bring that in is because you mentioned how many of us, as being my experience to run across, many of us make decisions very similar to how you made a decision to become a teacher. Mm. Notwithstanding that perhaps we didn't use all the appropriate criteria to arrive at that decision, life has a way of working out. It's a very good point you make, and I think this is how the modern career is actually evolving, that people try something and they move on and try something else, hopefully building on what they've learnt. So I saw some interesting stats the other day that the average person spends about two, an average of less than two years in the same job, and that's actually getting less and less. So what that means for a school leaver is that they'll have 14 different occupations probably one of those is likely to be a self-employment occupation. So this career path where we go and join the big firm and stay there for the rest of our lives is no longer valid. And so what that means is that we incrementally change and develop, you know, we pick up a bit of skill here, we move on, but you're absolutely right. When you look back on the career, you probably say, oh, okay, now I can understand where I've ended up with where I have. And it makes perfect sense, but at the time it made no sense because your head, you know, buried into a tree and you can't see the forest that's around it. So, yeah, I think this is quite common in the world of work. So do you think, Tim, that there is a way that we can learn how to identify the criteria that we need to make decisions to move forward so that we can do these things more easily, more readily, perhaps not follow some of the paths that we might later wish we hadn't? I think one of the best things that I've done, and I haven't done it, you know, I didn't do it 20-odd years ago, but I, one of the best things I did is to work out what my strengths were. Instead of worrying about what I wasn't good at, start looking at what you're actually good at. That is your innate talents. We've all got them, of course, but being aware of them is pretty important. And once you're aware of them, then you can start looking at how you might use those strengths and talents. So, for example, one of my strengths and talents is learning. I love learning. I'm obsessed with it. I read. I do all sorts of things. I'm not big noting myself. I'm just simply making the point that that's one of the things that I really enjoy doing. So much so that so I at one stage I could knock out two books a year, you know, writing two books, not reading them, writing them and actually producing them and getting them published. People go, how in heaven's name could you do that? Well, all I was really doing, or all I am doing now, is just building on my innate talents. So I think, what coming back to your question, what it means is that if people actually work out what their strengths are, 
then they can start looking at opportunities through the prism of that and not getting mesmerised by salaries and getting mesmerised by fancy titles and all the rest of it. That's a big mistake when we go down that road because if you build on your strengths, then your capacity to absorb and learn and, and produce is magnified. That would be my best advice for someone. And lots of people look at it. In fact, you touched on part of what I think my question is about, that some people get mesmerised by the title or by the parent value of the salary. Is it important that we look at one side or another? So, for example, should we identify what we want to achieve and then see if we have the skills to do it? Or should we look at the skills first and then decide what we might want to achieve? What an interesting question. Do we start with ourselves or we do, do we look beyond? I think we start with ourselves. I think the idea is to say, who am I? What am I about? What's my personality? You know, I guess what I'd be saying to people is it's all about your own personal growth and development. And not in a selfish way. It's just in a case of just understanding who you are. I run a, a unit at uh, one of the universities here, QUT, on personal leadership. And people come into it thinking, oh, this is just a piece of cake, no problem. But they come out saying it's one of the most confronting things they've ever done. And the reason for that is we don't look in the mirror very often. And what I encourage people to do, and certainly in that program, anywhere, I encourage people to actually spend the time looking at themselves and then, to answer your question directly, look for the opportunities that can meet those skills and strengths that people have got and I think you're better off that way because I think sometimes what happens is we you know dad was a doctor or you know mum was a psychologist so I'll be that that's probably not a good place to go you start with yourself and you look at your own you know your own innate strengths and then you look for the opportunities that fit those strengths that would be my best advice I give that advice to my daughters I'm not sure they listen but I still think it's valid advice. <laughs> well, I think, Tim, perhaps there are genetics at play there. So, But without going there, <laughs> you mentioned that you know, people come into that course you mentioned thinking, oh, this would be fine because essentially they're saying, okay, I'm just going to look in the mirror again, that's fine. But they come out quite different. Now, mm. when we look in the mirror, are we actually guided by what we would like to see or what we think we're going to see. Right. Well, that's where it gets confronting because looking at what you'd like to see and what you actually see, that's where it gets a little confronting. So you need a few little tools to help you with that. You know, your listeners would have heard of 360-degree feedback and there's a whole bunch of diagnostics that I encourage people to do because that way you can stand back a little bit from those things. And, of course, the other thing that I mentioned before is people get fixated with their weaknesses and they start working to try and make them a strength. Not a good idea. Our society has been socialised into trying to improve our weaknesses. So what happens is when we're very, very young, we come home with a report card and we've got 62% for maths and 98% for English, whatever it might be. Our parents, of course, focus on the 62% and say, what are you going to do about this rather than, you know, isn't it great that you've got this result in English? So we're being socialised into this whole notion that we've got to try and improve our weaknesses. Now, I'm not saying we should just drop the ball on stuff. I mean, I'm not terribly good at administrative stuff. I prefer big picture thinking and all the rest, but I've still got to do it to run a business. So you've still got to do these things. 
But to obsess with it and try and turn it into a strength is actually not a good use of time. A far better use of time would be to say, well, I'm good at the creative stuff or I'm good at learning, so I'll spend time doing that because I'm going to get a better return on investment that way. So that's what I encourage people to do, using tools to help. Yeah, which comes back to what you said very early on is let's look to our strengths and grow our strengths. At the end of the day, correct me if I'm wrong, it's pretty easy to grow a strength, whereas it might be difficult to grow that weakness other than to magnify the weakness. Absolutely, and it's more enjoyable too. I mean, one of the big questions that people can ask people at work, and I think this is a really practical thing, instead of saying to people, what are your strengths, and then they give you a blank look, not a good question to ask, a far better question might be, what do you enjoy about your work? Because we do know from research there's a high correlation between what people enjoy and what people are good at. And it's based on the three P principle. We practice what we prefer and ultimately we become proficient in it. So therefore, if you simply say to people, what do you enjoy doing at work? Hopefully they'll say something. Of course, they say nothing. Well, I'd say go and get another job, of course. But <laughs> hopefully they'll say something. And then the point is, then the next part of the conversation is around how can we better utilise and harness that strength? So you've got an accountant, for example, sitting in a back office and what they say they enjoy is the client interaction and they're very good at it and they enjoy it. So obviously the leader would think, well, what can we do to give them more opportunity in front of their customers or our clients? Because if we do that, we're harnessing their strength, they're going to enjoy their work more, we're going to get more out of them and so forth. That's the kind of thing that becomes very practical in a workplace. And there might be a few people out there, Tim, who are thinking perhaps this is all a little bit suspicious that we want to talk to people on a personal level when we're talking about business or perhaps you know, talking to people on a personal level is going to put them off. Have you got some tips about or suggestions about how one can have a conversation like that without putting people off? Yeah, look, I think you make an interesting point. I think this is one of the problems that we've got in the workplace is that people come to work and I've never quite understood why are people different at work than they are at home? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, so why are that? Why are we different at home and work? People say, oh, I'm very different at home. I'm an extrovert and at work I'm an introvert. Why? Well, it's interesting. So we carry around this kind of facade and I just think that being, and I understand people feel comfortable with that. I'm not suggesting we share our deepest, darkest secrets at work. But I think we could actually benefit from being a little bit more human in the workplace. So, for example, you know, we talk about leaders need to be humble. We talk about leaders being authentic. And then they sort of look at you and say, how do you do that? Which I find very interesting, you know, question coming back. Just be yourself. If you make a mistake, just say, I've messed up. If you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know. Because at the end of the day, a lot of us spend more time with the people that we, you know, work with than we do our loved ones. And it's crazy and we're carrying around this facade. I think that's part of the problem. So I think if now how do you get people to feel a bit more comfortable? I guess, you know, you've got to be comfortable in your own skin to start with, clearly. But asking them questions, have the regular conversation, sit down and try and find out about the person. And I'm not suggesting that we become social workers or psychologists or anything like that. That's not the point. The point 
there's a very there's a couple of clients, a couple of very good business partners that I have in the states, and uh, they wrote a great book. Uh, Jim Kuzner and Barry Posner wrote a fantastic book called Credibility, and in that book made a very simple statement. It just hit me right between the eyes. It said, "Leadership is a relationship." Now I thought, okay, that's interesting. Now I didn't mean it as a personal relationship. It's obviously a working relationship. And then my question to them would be, how do you have a relationship with anybody? And, of course, the answer is very simple, one conversation at a time. You can't do it via email. You can't do it by sending people texts. Not really, not really, but yet that's what we do. So I thought that was really interesting, and that's pretty much the philosophy of what I tend to sort of talk about when I'm working with my clients. Indeed, and it is, as you say, it's a simple conversation. And just for the benefit of the listeners, a short time ago I asked you about your family and for further clarity, no, I didn't set it up. He didn't know I was going to ask him about his family. But when I did, you entered into conversation and chatted about it. Did you feel at all uncomfortable about any of that? No, I think it's a very good example of putting people at ease, Clive, and I think that's the point that people can do that. I mean, if you've got to have a tough conversation with someone, I don't think there's, you know, you call someone away and you say, well, I need to talk to you, and they know it's not going to be good news. That's not a time and a place to start talking about the family. Of course, you just get straight to the point. And because the other person's sitting there thinking, what are they going to hit me with here? What's this all about? So that dignity there would be about getting straight to the point. But, of course, not every conversation we have is a performance conversation. And, yeah, it's a good point. Building up important working relationships, and the key word there is working relationships, is paramount to business success. And now the research is showing that. And, of course, that comes back again to the people and what are people they have conversations about their personal well-being. So... Even though this is business conversations with Clive Enema, most of the conversations involve the people and their family. So I think what you're doing is absolutely excellent. Bring it into the workforce more. Have more conversations. Understand who the people are. And you can add in, Tim, the, the bits that I just missed there. Well, it's interesting that, you know, all around the world now, there are courses being run on how to have conversations bizarre. Like, could you imagine if your parents are alive and you sort of got on the phone, you said, guess what, mum and dad? We just had a really interesting training course on having conversations. They would laugh their head off. I think that was the funniest thing they've ever heard. That's how far removed we have become from the connection. This is what I tried to talk about earlier on when I talked about the fact that we've been becoming more and more robotic and moving away from the humanists. So now we're having courses all over the world on how to talk to people. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the fact is that every single one of us have hundreds, thousands, tens, millions of conversations. And so we're well practised. And then people say, oh, it's an art form. You know, to have a conversation is an art form. Absolute rubbish. It's not an art form. Having difficult conversations is an art form, but having a normal conversation is not an art form. And so we've got all this interesting sort of dynamic that this is very tough. And so because it's so tough, I'll just default back to the command and control mindset I talked about earlier. Which has brought us to where we are. Absolutely. 
of course, if you pull them up, they'll all they'll tell you that oh no, I'm not like that. I'm a you know I'm a very accommodating manager or whatever. But you know then go and talk to the people that they manage, and you may well get a different story. And you know I work with lots of these people, and some of them are very receptive to the message, and some of course aren't. I mean I remember saying to someone the other day. I was working with them. I looked at their feedback. It was awful. And when I met them, they were a very reasonable person. And I said, okay, when you come to work, what happens? They said, well, I've got two ways of getting to the office. I can go through the front way or I can go through the, the, you know, the car park downstairs. And I say, which way do you go? And they said, the car park. I said, why? They said, because it's quicker. And I said, right, next week I want you to go through the office and I want you just to have a little conversation, chit-chat, say hello to people, find out how their weekend was. And I looked at her face and looked like she'd just sucked on a lemon. It was just incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. She just thought that was absolute rubbish. You know, this is the point I'm making. And so she would not have understood this connection would be integral to her capacity to get the best from her people. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, and I can relate well to that, Tim, uh, As you know, I coach people in business and often I find that the people I'm coaching know nothing of their employees beyond their first name, don't know what their family is, don't know what, you know, if it's a lady, don't know what the husband's name is, don't know what the husband does, don't know what the time the husband gets home, all these sort of things. And yet when these people actually go and find out about this, all of a sudden their business improves. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It is. And I don't think it's about a technique, Clive. I don't think it's about people saying, okay, I'm going to try these techniques. I'm going to ask people about their family. I'm going to do this. That's a technique. What I'm saying is just be authentic. Just be, I mean, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be interested in people. I mean, that's the bottom line. So just be yourself. Find out about people. Be be curious. Talk to people. And I use a little term. I say respectfully curious. Respectfully meaning obviously everyone's got their boundaries, but curiosity means I'm willing to find out a little bit more. And then, of course, those same managers you've talked about who don't know people's name or anything else, they're scratching their head wondering why these people aren't operating effectively. Mm -hmm. It's very, very interesting. I call this the initiative paradox. The manager comes to work and they think, I want everyone to show initiative. I want everyone to be, you know, being entrepreneurial. And so they have a meeting and they say that to everyone and everyone sits there thinking he, he or she doesn't really mean that. This is rubbish. But anyway, we'll just nod dutifully. Mm-hmm. The manager walks away and, of course, nothing happens because these employees think nothing's going to happen. So what happens is the manager thinks, aha, there you are. I knew these people didn't want to show initiative. So they jump in and do what they've asked them employees to do and the employees sit back and go there you go I knew it he didn't really mean it and it's like a dog chasing its own tail it's entertained but it never gets there and I find it really interesting that it is and of course it's very much looking in that mirror to see what we want what we expect to see exactly and people sit there and go he didn't mean it or she didn't mean it and it's yeah anyway it keeps me out of trouble Clyde (laughs) (laughs) very good now (laughs) Tim Tell us, what is the best tip you have received from a business conversation? I had a mentor years ago who was a psychologist, very, very perceptive 
person. He'd be the sort of person that you'd walk into the room and you'd think, I'm not going to tell him the full story, but he'd end up using silence and all sorts of techniques and get you to tell you, tell you his life story. But he did say to me one day, he said, look, give you one bit of advice. It's just not that I wasn't doing this. It was just because he was my mentor. He said, treat people with dignity. And I thought, I thought, what's all that mean? And then, of course, you know, I understand now what that means. In fact, I stood, understood it for a long period of time. But I think this is very important. And i thinking of writing a book called Workplace Dignity. And, you know, we've got things, it's interesting, isn't it? We've got things like diversity, you know, treating people, you know, we've got all of these policies and procedures in place and everyone's eyes glaze over because of them, we've heard all this before. But ultimately, they all come under one simple term, treating people with dignity. That's what we're ultimately trying to do. So I'm just trying to bring it back to the fundamentals. Anyway, I've created a bit of a career out of that wonderful bit of advice I got from a mentor many, many moons ago. And excellent advice it is. So what's the top piece of advice you'd like to leave listeners with today? The advice that I leave listeners today is to sit down and find the time to have regular conversations with the people you work with. Not talking about chit-chat, I'm talking about conversations, two-way, free-flowing and so forth. Your life will be enriched, you'll have a much better, happier experience in the workplace. If you're a manager, it will be contingent on your success, no question. If you're an employee, you will find that you'll enjoy your work more. And finding the opportunities to do that, people offer. I remember talking to a manager the other day, he said to me, he said, oh, I don't have time for conversations. He's wondering why his turnover was 25% of employees a year. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't have conversations? He said, oh, no, we talk about work. And I said, okay. I said, that's obviously I'm not suggesting you don't do that. But what about having some regular check-ins with your people to find out how they're travelling? And, of course, again, I'm not sure he accepted that advice eagerly, but he, but he certainly wanted to stop the 25% turnover and I saw a connection between the two. That would be my advice, yeah. Yes, and you know, all of those sort of things, Tim, you mentioned earlier about we've become focused on KPIs and various things of that nature. They're all important because if we understand how to read them, interpret them, they tell us perhaps we're not having the right conversation. But most importantly, Tim Baker, before I let you go, how can our listeners connect with you to start their own business conversation? Okay, well, that's www.winnersatwork, that's all one word, .com.au. There's a lot of resources on there. There's some free webinars to attend. My email address is there. I'd love to talk to any of you who'd like to get in contact. There you go. So that's Winners at Work. See the simple spelling of that, but all one word, winnersatwork.com.au. Dr. Tim Baker, thank you so much for coming on. That's been an absolutely wonderful conversation about let's have more conversations. So <laughs> thank you for being here and we'll anticipate we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Clive. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Enova. Make sure you subscribe to future episodes via your favourite podcast app and you can find more business resources at cliveenova.com.au.